Lord God, we thank you for helping us reach that goal and raise ten grand, six hundred dollars. Uh, we're so uh, honored that uh, this this happened and amazed. And uh, o- only you, only you, could could make that happen through us. Uh, Lord God, we ask that uh, you would get our focus on you and get us our focus on our text. We see. Uh, in scripture that you shine out in the universe. You are the light of the world. Your light brings truth and clarity to our lives. You shine light on the dark places of our hearts that expose what's going on and you then lead us to change and and look to your daily grace that is available to to come out of the darkness in those areas in our hearts. Uh, Lord, we know that as your church family, we exist to shine out your light uh, into our dark world in which we live in order to reach even more people for your name's sake. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to to shine as we are transformed into your image. Help us to shine in how we conduct our relationships in home and in our workplaces and streets. Help us to shine as we pursue your mission in our everyday lives. And Holy Spirit, I ask for your help in this moment that every word I say would be from you and for you and your glory alone. I need your power and your anointing uh, in this moment, to, to preach your word in a way that is, is received and is, it helps us all and encourages us all and leads us to repentance and worship and greater trust in you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Richard. Is Richard here? Here he is. (laughs) I lost you, man. Richard's going to read today's scripture. First time for Richard, so we are grateful for you doing this today. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Thank you, Richard. Well done. Uh, we are continuing our current sermon series on the book of Philippians. It is uh, labeled and called To Live as Christ. And this idea of, quote, to live as Christ and what that means is essentially to, to really live is all about serving Jesus, pursuing his mission. That brings deep and satisfying joy. If you really want to live, you really want to get on board with the greatest cause in the universe, that is the mission of Christ. The title of today's message, though, is just one word, that being shine. And to introduce this idea of shine and shining, 
I want to tell you about a particular toy of mine that I loved very, very much as a child. It was my glow-in-the-dark Frisbee. I loved that glow-in-the-dark Frisbee, and what made this Frisbee very cool and very special was that it allowed you to play with it at night. There could be pitch black, complete darkness, you could play with it. It was awesome. But the thing is, for you to play with your glow-in-the-dark Frisbee, it did require some advanced preparation. What you had to do was to place the Frisbee close to or near to or on top of a light or light bulb in the house or be in the brightest house in the room or use a flashlight. Basically, as you may know, it needs to absorb a light and as much light energy as possible before you start gallivanting off into the nighttime to throw this glow-in-the-dark frisbee around with your brother. So this is what we did. We threw around this glow-in-the-dark frisbee in the pitch blackness with my brother, and it was all kinds of fun. But let me just uh, tell you that this was not the safest activity, okay? This is not probably the smartest activity uh, at all. Uh, you, could, you could see the frisbee in the complete darkness in all its glory. It would shine out. But could you see anything else all that well? Things like trees, things like walls, things like picnic tables. You could not see them that well, and so therefore there were a few accidents, there was some injuries, there were some, a lot of bloodshed. And, uh, but you know, when, when there's bloodshed, there's also a lot of fun very often with that, right? It was worth it. It was worth the injuries. Because to see that glowing green frisbee shining in all its, in all its glory was a sight to behold. People would see it flying through the air and shining in the air, and they would say, that's amazing. It was like this green laser beam. I mean, it it was awesome. Here's the connection to what I'm driving at today. To shine like that spiritually is really the center idea in our passage from Philippians. Uh, We as a church family are instructed by God to collectively shine out the life of Christ and the character of Christ and and the kingdom of Christ in our everyday lives, not just individually, not just Kurt, it's all of us doing this together communally as a church family, and we are sort of like a lighthouse of hope together, uh, a lighthouse of rescue in the dark that people can come to and meet Jesus and, and be saved and transformed by him. The world is a very dark place. We are to be that light in our world. Now, what our passage shows us are four ways uh, that we are to, to shine out the, the life and the light and the character and the love of Jesus in order to display the gospel and persuade more and more people to trust and follow Jesus. And because this is the person that each and every person ever made and who exists today was meant and designed to trust and follow. So we're doing them a huge favor by sharing this news. It's the best thing for them. Do we believe that? We should. Uh, Let's move on to the first point in our passage. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to, and there's a sermon outline if you do want to follow along and fill in those blanks. It just causes one to giggle as you fill those blanks out. Number one is this, namely, shine as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling as God empowers. Shine as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling as God empowers. We see this in verses 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but 
much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a few things I want to bring to your attention here in these two verses. The first thing in verse 12 is where Paul calls the Philippian church family his beloved. His beloved. Can you imagine referring to your church, Mercy Hill Church, as my beloved? My beloved church. Can you do that? That's what he does. He really cares for this church family. You don't call someone your beloved unless you truly love, truly cherish them. So church leaders, if you're a leader in this church, deacons, deaconesses, uh, elders, whatever, staff members, we must love our church in that kind of way where we call our church our beloved. Can you imagine that? That's what we must do. Second thing, in verse 12, Paul says, quote, as you have always obeyed, as you have always obeyed. In other words, this Philippian church is the kind of church where obedience to Jesus has become normalized. That's just the default mode is doing what Jesus says, making it happen. Isn't that cool? I mean, this church is not like the crazy Jerry Springer-like Corinthian church. If you read 1 Corinthians, I mean, it's nuts what was happening in the Corinthian church. I mean, they, they were experts in breaking commandments, okay? But that is not what the Philippian church is like. They know how to lovingly, and yes, imperfectly, they are not perfect, but they know how to imperfectly obey Jesus, and might Jesus and his commands be the normal thing for us to obey here as well? All right, but that, those are just two sub-points. Back to the point that I made earlier, and that is really central to what God is, is telling us through Paul here. It is possible when you read verses 12 and 13 to be completely confused, okay? To misinterpret, to misunderstand what he is saying. And it's possible for you to think when you read those verses to assume wrongly that Paul is saying, i got to work my own way into heaven here. I need to get into God's good books. I need to score brownie points with God. And if I just obey well and I perform well for God like a trained, a trained seal, and if I submit my spiritual resume with all my moral accolades, submit it to God, and then he'll, if I perform well for God, he's going to let me into heaven. I will be saved if I, if I work my own salvation here. Is this what Paul is saying? He is not saying this. This is not... What he's saying, this is not how the gospel works at all. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For it is by grace, that's unmerited favor, undeserved gift. It is by grace, grace, grace you have been saved through faith. Empty hands of faith, we just received the gift. This is not your own doing, that verse says. No, it's the gift of God. It's all God. We just respond to the gift. We don't earn our way into heaven. Only way we can receive salvation and rescue from God's judgment in hell is by trusting in what Jesus has earned for us. He's earned salvation for us. He's made salvation happen for us. How did he do that? He, he lived your perfect life for you. He died on the cross for your sins and your place. And then he rose again three days later. Jesus clearly did all of the earning of your salvation and mine. So what is Paul saying here in verse 12 then? Where he says, you've got to work out your own salvation. What is he saying? Well, he is saying, be the saved person you already are. Work out the salvation implications of your faith in Jesus. Live, this is my favorite way of describing this and explaining this verse. Live out the salvation lifestyle. Live a gospel 
displaying life together as a church family. Basically, together as a church family, be who you already are in Christ. Just be who you are. Live the salvation lifestyle. Wait a minute, though. Remember the fear and the trembling part? Wasn't that a little disconcerting? Like, that sounds odd. It sounds weird. And it worries me, right? Is that what you're, are you worried about that? Is Paul suggesting, okay, as we live the salvation lifestyle, the Christian life, all right, should we do so in a paranoid kind of way? All right, is paranoid Christianity what it's all about? Should I live in this terrorized sort of fearful state all the time that if I don't measure up, you know, God's going to strike me down. I should always sort of be looking around, waiting for the, the lightning to strike, uh, especially when I disobey and I don't measure up perfectly. God's going to strike me down and, and just blow me up. Is that what's, what, what Paul is suggesting here? What's the answer? The answer is no. It's not about being terrorized or living as a paranoid Christian. You see, the, to, to live for you and I and us as a church family, to live the salvation lifestyle with fear and trembling... It simply means living respectfully towards God, living reverently towards Jesus, honoring him, that you are the, the ruler of the universe here. We're, we're taking you seriously. This is not light and fluffy stuff here. We are taking obedience to you seriously. And we honor you for being the ruler of the universe. Not unlike how children, some parents in the room, children rightfully respect their parents' loving authority. That's good. That's right. That's our stance towards God as our Heavenly Father. Okay? What this means is, all this means is to, to live with, you know, live the salvation lifestyle with, with fear and trembling. It simply means not being flippant towards God. All right? We're not obeying today because I feel like it, and then tomorrow, oh, I don't feel like obeying. That's, that's, not, that's not in our wheelhouse, if I can use that word. Okay? Our obedience is not tied to our emotional state at the time. No, no, no. That's not how it works. We're no, we just obey because it's the right thing. We're reverent toward him. This is serious stuff. All right. Working out our salvation with fear and trembling means simply, as you, me, we're seeking to grow in holiness, we are seeking to become more and more like Jesus. He is the most perfect, loving, beautiful person in the universe. This is all about becoming a changed, transformed, increasingly sanctified Christian. And let me just share a helpful analogy to, to sort out this thing called Transformation or sanctification is the biblical word, which means changing into the image of Christ as time goes on. Uh, that analogy is simply that of a bicycle. Some of us may have a bicycle. Anyone have an electric bicycle? That's a new thing recently. You might have one. Those are great. Um, but a bicycle. And to the old school bicycle, to propel forward, uh, what you have to do is push the pedals, right? There's a left and there's a right. And uh, this is scientific as I'm getting. I mean, this is just basic engineering, right? Basic propulsion uh, on a bicycle. And both have to move forward for the bike to move forward, okay? And for us to, to, us, for us to live the salvation lifestyle, yes, there's your part. But on the other side, there's the Holy Spirit's part. The Holy Spirit dwells and lives within every true Christian. And so it's... You working together, cooperating together with God the Holy Spirit, and that what, that's what helps you go forward. Now, who's driving the bike? Jesus, oh, of course. Now, analogies only go so far. You don't find the bike analogy in this passage. But I hope that's helped you understand there's a partnership, there's a cooperation. You have to put in some effort, okay? That's how it works. The point is, 
we together make progress in our holiness, in our Christian transformation, in our imaging of Jesus as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit who lives within us and he, he empowers us both to will and to act according to God's good pleasure. We can't do anything without him. So Mercy Hill Church family, for us to shine like stars in our culture, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our city, we need, we need to cooperate with God the Holy Spirit to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Will we seek to do this more and more? We must. Let's move on to the second key point in our passage, number two. Shine as we seek to do all things, not with grumbling or disputing, but blamelessness and innocence. I'm not sure grammatically that that point works, but anyhow, I'm not known for my strength in that area. But this is what we're looking at. Not with grumbling or disputing, but blamelessness and innocence. That's how we shine as a church family. And we get this from verse 14 and 15. Let me read it again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine, there it is, as lights in the world. The end of verse 15 there, Paul talks about this Philippian church shining as lights in the world, and that's really the heart of what we're looking at. And the key way that Paul instructs this church to shine out in their dark world, in verse 14, is to do all things, not with grumbling, not with disputing, not with fighting each other. No, no, no. Do all things as a church with blamelessness, with innocence. Now, here's an interesting thing. Back in verse 15 there, Paul uses a phrase that harkens back to Old Testament times. And it is the phrase, quote, crooked and twisted generation. Reminds me of the phrase sick and twisted, which I use often. It's kind of the same thing, okay? They're kind of sick and twisted here. And this phrase was, was often used to describe, uh, biblically, earlier in the Bible, the, the wilderness nation of Israel. Uh, shortly after, the, the quick recap of Bible history here, uh, the people of God were, under, were in horrible slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And they were abused for 400 years. Uh, thankfully, God heard their cries and he rescued them. He sent his servant Moses to lead them out of that uh, slavery, and it was, a, it was a miracle in every way. And one of the most mind-blowing miracles that God did to save and rescue his people from Egypt was he literally split the Red Sea into two pieces, and he put, he, with the wind, he parted the Red Sea, he made the ground dry for God's people to travel through, and then he closed up the sea on the Egyptian soldiers. That is amazing. I mean, that is just mind-blowing. But literally just days after that mind-blowing miracle that God did to save his people, you know what they started doing? Just days after that, they start grumbling towards God. They start complaining towards God. They start disputing with leadership and with each other. You know why? It's because they were upset. They were accusing God. You need to do better, God. You need to try again, God. You're not meeting our needs in the way that we want you to. Try again. And as they travel very slowly towards the promised land, they're traveling through the wilderness, God's people became experts in two things. You know what those two things were? Grumbling 
and disputing. Experts in those things. Disputing God, disputing Moses, disputing with one another, and therefore God calls them what? He calls them sick and twisted, a crooked and twisted generation. These people are not exactly shining lights at all. They're dark lights, if that's a thing. I don't know. Here's my point. You see my point? In order for us, Mercy Hill Church, to shine as lights in our world today, in our crooked and twisted culture in which we live, we need to be known for our innocence in place of grumbling. Mercy Hill Church needs to become known for blameless, imperfect, but blameless living instead of disputing and and fighting with one another or with God for that matter. That's what we need to become known for. That's what people need to see from us. Innocence and blamelessness. Imperfection, yes, but by and large, a different way of living, a holy lifestyle. Now, I want you to think about that family. You know who that family is? It's that family that fights all the time. I pray this is not you. It might be. Don't worry. There's grace. There's transforming grace from Jesus, okay? And all of our families fight sometimes. I get that. But this is a family, that's all they do, is fight all the time. They grumble and complain all the time. They raise their voices all the time with one another. That is normalized for them. Conflict is normalized in this family. It is never quiet in their home. There's little or no encouragement in the home. There's, there's no tangible gentleness or understanding in the marriage. It's that family. And everyone from the outside who sees this family, or if they happen to, to spend time with the family in that family's own home, they know something is wrong. Something is wrong. They, they can see that this is not a shining example of what a family is to be. This is not, they are not shining out health or love or encouragement. They're shining out grumbling and disputation and fighting. And, and you see, here's my point. We are a church, and we are a church family. And imagine us grumbling about our worship leader preferences. Imagine us grumbling about our preacher preferences. Grumbling about how annoying our spouses are to one another. Or how annoying our kids are to one another. Yes, we just need to have honest conversations, but if we're doing that all the time, that's a problem. How much I hate my job, and we're doing that, and we're spreading that grumbling to other people as well. Or maybe we're grumbling about other, other ethnic groups in our own church and how you know, they're not like us and stuff like that. No, 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 not at all. We must not do this. Let us instead, with the Lord's empowering, because remember, it is he who causes us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Let us seek with his power, as a church family, to be blameless, to seek to be unified on the same page with Jesus together. Let us not see grumbling or disputing here. Nothing but innocence in Christ. Yes, we will fail. Yes, there is grace. That's why we need him every minute of every day. We need the gospel every minute of every day to save us from ourselves. But I'm just talking broad brush. We need to be characterized with these things. And so, as we shine in this way, the crooked and twisted generation that is our world, they take notice. They see us acting in this different way, acting in the love of Christ, how we love Christ and how we love one another. 
and they see Jesus in us. That's how we prove to the world that Christ is among us. And this light of Christ is attractive. They want the light. They come to the light. They desire the light. They desire the same gospel power in their lives as well. So let us shine as we seek to do all things, not with grumbling or disputing, but with blamelessness and with innocence. Moving on to the third key point in this passage. Still with me? Number three is this. Shine as we hold fast to the gospel, which is the word of life. Shine as we hold fast to the gospel, the word of life. Look at verse 16 there. It says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What this means is, someday Jesus is returning. That day will be the day of Christ. See it in verse 16. He talks about the day of Christ. Jesus is coming back. He will, at that day, on that day, judge the nations, judge individuals, to determine whether they live for Jesus or not. That day is coming. It's there. The good news is, for the Christian, you are not worried about Judgment Day. Judgment Day or the Day of Christ does not alarm you because Jesus was already judged for you in your place. He paid for all of your sins on his cross. That is very good news. That price has been paid in full. And so what Paul is doing here in verse 16, he's kind of imagining or sort of envisioning this future day of Christ that is coming. This is Judgment Day. And Paul, he is hoping to see amongst the crowd of people joy-filled faces of all the Philippian church members there. Joy-filled faces. And if Paul sees their joy-filled faces on Judgment Day, it will prove to Paul in that moment that they did an essential thing. You know what they did to have joy on Judgment Day? They held fast to the word of life. They did not let go. Word of life is code speak for the gospel, the good news about Jesus and his finished work on the cross. They held on to the gospel no matter what, the word of life. And Paul is hoping that on that day, on Judgment Day, which is still coming, by the way, that he will be proud of them. He will see their joy-filled faces, and he will be so proud, like a proud parent. They held on to Jesus no matter what, even though it meant possible death for them in that time. So what this means is, turning that around, Paul's worst fear is that on the day of Christ is if their faces are anything but joyful, if their faces are worried and full of fear. He doesn't want to see that. If their faces on Judgment Day are worried, full of fear, that only proves that they did not hold fast to the word of life. They let go. They let go of the gospel. Instead, they replaced their hope in the gospel with other hopes, competing hopes, other dreams, other missions, other God replacements. This is a worst-case scenario because, you know, Paul, he devoted his life to Christian ministry and the mission of Jesus. All that work and labor and training that Paul did with the Philippian church would be all for naught. It would be in vain. And there's nothing worse than work in vain Tears in vain, blood, sweat, and tears in vain. Nothing worse than that. So that's his worst nightmare. But it's not happening, by the way. It doesn't appear to be happening in this church. But let's, let's go with this a little bit more. Imagining that they let go of the gospel, that would be like a parent or a mom or a dad. Some of you are parents in the room. 
And imagine this. You devote your whole life to your kids, investing in your kids. You raise them in the best ways. You give them the best education you can. You train them to pursue integrity and, and healthy relationships. And as a parent, you literally invest. Did you know that you invest somewhere in the range of, I think it's in and around $200,000 uh, from age 0 to 18. That's how much kids cost, statistically speaking. So hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of hours, blood, sweat, and tears. And in the end, this sometimes happens. Your child kind of rejects all of your training, kind of reject your morals. They kind of reject the investment. And worst of all, sometimes your kids reject you. They reject you sometimes. What does that feel like? It feels like running in vain, laboring for nothing. And this happens sometimes beyond our control. Devastating. And the reason, the reason this happens is because your child did not hold fast to what you taught them. They lost their way. They let go. And they decided to chase lesser things. Here's my point. Mercy Hill Church, we must never, ever let go of our grip of the gospel, the word of life. Everything about us, every, everything about us, our core identity, who we are, our security, our hope, our future, our mission, our God, everything is really wrapped up in us holding fast to Jesus, to the gospel, no matter what. I mean, if you take Jesus out of the, que- out of the equation, you take the gospel out of the equation, we got nothing. We got nothing. I believe that with all of my heart. We got nothing without Jesus. Therefore, hold fast. Hold on for dear life. This is sort of like if you are drowning in the ocean, someone throws you a lifesaver. I mean, you hold on to that lifesaver for dear life, do you not? Without that lifesaver, it's not going to go well for you. Instead, you can thrive with the lifesaver. And so must we hold on for dear life to the gospel in the middle of our cultural storm, not letting anything become more important to us than Jesus, not letting money or career become more important to us than Jesus, not letting our hobbies become more important to us than Jesus, not letting our politics become more important to us than Jesus, not letting even our spouses or kids become more important to us than Jesus, not letting even what our kids are participating in become more important to us than Jesus. Let us not make anything more primary to our hearts than Christ and his gospel because without him, we got nothing. But with him, we got everything. With him, we got everything. That takes us to our final point, number four in your notes. Anybody warm in here, by the way? It's a little warm. It's not helping, is it? It's not helping, but only one more point. Okay, number four is this. Shine and rejoice as we pour out our lives for the mission of Jesus. Shine and rejoice as we pour out our lives for the mission of Jesus. Verses 17 and 18, let me reread those. It says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I really like the word picture that Paul uh, gives us here. And this is a, an image of a drink being poured out. You ever do that? You ever drink, pour your drinks out onto the ground or just, just oh, why not? I'll just pour out my drink here. <laughs> no one ever does that, right? It sounds a little weird, uh, a little strange. Like, it sounds like a waste, right? Like, don't waste the liquid. Don't. 
But let me explain this. There's a reason for why he talks about this drink offering. He's referring to the drink offering from Old Testament times. And that was under the old Mosaic uh, covenant that God gave to God's people through Moses. And how this worked was you would literally pour out your wine either onto the ground or in this case that Paul seems to be, be referring to, onto your animal or grain sacrifice that you would later burn as a sweet incense to God. That's how they did it back then. We don't have to offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice once for all for our sins. But back then, wine was a very expensive commodity unless you made it yourself. But even if you made wine yourself, it took all kinds of effort and time and patience. It was not an easy thing to come by. So when you poured out your wine on anything, it was a sacrifice. So here's what this drink offering symbolized back then. It symbolized you, I'm going to pour out my life. I'm going to pour out something that has value to me. I'm going to spend my life for God. That's really what it meant. I'm going to spend my life for God. I'm pouring myself out to you, God, as a sacrifice. I am here to serve you. I'm giving myself to you. I want to honor you with my life. I want to worship you with my life. I am telling you, God, my life is yours. Here I am. Take me. Take my life as a sacrifice for you. And Paul is saying here, his life is kind of like that. It's been all about Jesus and others. His life, it's been for Jesus and the, the Philippian church family, pouring himself out for their benefit and God's glory. Paul doesn't complain. I mean, the guy's in jail when he writes this letter. He never complains. He never complains. Never not at all. Instead, he is glad. He is rejoicing. He is happy in jail of all places. He's happy because his life has been all about pouring himself out for the mission of Jesus. And he has been all about helping people hear about Christ, helping people hear about the gospel, hear about the cross, hear about the resurrection, point people to Christ for, for rescue and, and real-life transformation. He's been all about the mission of Jesus, helping people meet Christ to, to receive heaven in their future instead of hell. And so Mercy Hill Church family, let us do the same thing with our lives. It is worth it. Christ is worth it. Let us, for us to shine in our dark world, let us with joy, not complaining, not grumbling about the mission of Jesus, but rejoicing in it. I get to, to give my life to Christ. I get to give my life to my church family. I get to give my life in service towards others. What an opportunity. And so, this is what we must be about. Let us do this together. Let us give up our lives, sacrifice our lives, pour out our lives for the sake of Christ and other people. Let us uh, pray together now, shall we? Lord Jesus, we...